This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome to the Whitetail Legacy Podcast. Tomorrow is opening day. This morning, then I have a great hunt. Deer didn't move like usual. We just got set up in the middle of this bedding thicket. Oh, saving this spot from the rut. It's a nice, I think it's a nice buck. It's a 170. That was money. I think it's down right over there. 10 yards. Woo! Whitetail Legacy Podcast. Bringing you back to the hunt and leaving a legacy. Baller rut. Welcome to the Whitetail Legacy Podcast. Still on the airwaves, coming at you on a Wednesday. I hope you're having a great midweek day. Hope this episode brings a little positivity in your life. Um, it's getting that time of year when you might want to get out there and do a little land management. Um, I think this was a time of year. Last year we were thinking about doing a little burning, um, getting a little bit yeah. of little food plot work, getting ready, prepping. So we had Brett Smith from Whitetail Land Management come on. Guy is super knowledgeable about everything you can do to your land to improve your whitetail, even if um, – you're not interested in hiring this guy to come do the work. There's a lot of knowledge in here that you can do yourself. And he even says that. But uh, if you're the guy out there that um, has the means to uh, to hire a guy, I would definitely do this. You can tell he's ambitious, really gets after it, and uh, knows what he's talking about. So let's get into the show. And, or let's get into the people that make this possible. Then <laughs> I we'll say jump show. ahead here. Yeah. We got um, bills to pay, son. <laughs> let's start out with the VIP veteran broadhead. Uh Still supporting us. Cannot say enough for Matt and Cindy. Um, great company. Um, check out the Combat Veteran coming out very soon. Do you have the VIP Veteran Broadhead shout out? Yeah, this VIP Veteran Broadhead shout out is sitting from my stepmom, Tammy. Um, they just moved to Alito a couple of years ago, and their old neighbor, um, Adam, 
He was a sergeant in the police force, which we do support, and um, told her that he listens. So he thought, she thought that he would be a good um, shout out for this week. And um, he is also related to Logan and Michaela. Um, oh, cool. Log- Logan Bulkus yeah. and soon to be uh, Michaela Putnam. So very cool, very close to us with the Last Breath guys there. And, um, you know, Adam, we appreciate you for your service with the, with the police. Yeah, that's cool, man. It's, we like to shout out the military, but police, firefighters, ambulance, all you guys, EMTs, um, volunteer firefighters, you guys all do a great deed, and uh, we, we appreciate you. So let's get into Ingram's outdoor obsession, all your custom taxidermy needs. I'm excited to hopefully take a turkey up there this year. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, I just bought the Indian head for my one from last year. So I am nice. going to go up to Ingram's and we're going to do that together. He That's going to be cool. Yeah. So hopefully there's room out here for it somewhere. We'll find a spot. Um, all the bucks in here. <laughs> so we're running out of space. <laughs> yeah. That's a uh, good problem to have, though. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, um, if you guys uh, do end up shooting tur- turkey in the local area, check them out. I just seen some people on Facebook looking for a turkey taxidermist. I guess a lot of people are charging hella, hella money hella for, done. for for a turkey full yes. body. So um, check check him out. Um, and ECW, all your custom call needs. You can uh, check them out in Farm King now in Canton, making moves. So making just moves. making moves, getting that. Turkey call. He said it will be available before turkey season in Farm King. So our local listeners that want to try it out, um, go ahead and hit that up. He's also, if you follow his uh, Facebook page, going to a lot of shows this year. Yes. Um, he's going to be in Tennessee. He was just in Kentucky. So uh, check that out if you want to check out his calls. Um, might be able to find him local and be able to to play with the calls a little bit before you buy them online. So. And check out Exodus Trail Cam. Still supporting the show. Can't say enough about them guys. Love the brand. Love the product. Love the people running it. All right. Uh, let's get into the show. All right. We got Brett Smith on. We're, he's going to talk about everything whitetail management. Um, how you doing tonight, Brett? Not too bad. How you guys doing? Doing real good. I appreciate you coming on and... Uh, spitting some knowledge we need some knowledge in this yes. this craft we do a little bit but uh there's always more you can do and i know there's going to be something in this that we're talking about we're gonna be like need to do that so uh um go ahead and give the listeners a brief introduction of who you are and what you do yeah so my name is brett smith i'm the owner of our two companies one one is whitetail land management services which is a habitat management company um we go and we help uh we help hunters out who own private parcels throughout the United States, um, kind of just creating better deer habitat and ultimately just making the, the overall experience, whatever their goal is, more enjoyable. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we, we, we range from all, ty- all types of different properties that we, we help help out on. And basically, like I said, we write habitat management plans um, for those clients. And then the other company, I'm the co-owner of Rising Grind Outdoors, which is actually a company and show that I got going on with my buddy, uh, Corey Anderson. He's the number five UFC um, light heavyweight in the world right now. He's actually fighting next weekend. Um, he was actually on Joe Rogan's podcast last year. So we are, are also actually starting something up. Well, it's kind of in the beginning stages right now. So that's who I am. 
wow, this is way below Joe Rogan. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, man, I, that's, that's awesome. I, you said that you guys were starting something out and I absolutely love when people, um, take the initiative to to go after it. We actually have some homie had some friends that finally took the leap and did it. So, um, it's just exciting to see people do that and grow and we get to follow them. And there's a, Lot of, there's a lot of people out there killing whitetails, doing it a lot of different ways, and it's cool to see how other people do it because it can inevitably make you a better whitetail hunter in the end. So, absolutely, like you said, I mean, you, you kind of hit it on the head there. I mean, it's it's it's, uh, it's it's cool to take in everybody else's you know tactics and stuff like that. You always got to be an open book with that stuff. And some guys like to do things their way, but it, 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 and that's fine. It's just it never hurts to keep an open ear to something else that or somebody you know something else that somebody else might have tried. So. I agree with you on that one. Yeah, and I mean, there's no right or wrong way to to hunt. You know, you hunting how you think you want to hunt. And, um, you know, whether you get it done or not, you know, to be told. But, I mean, you can't tell. I can't tell Cody, and, you know, you can't tell me, well, hey, what you're doing is dumb. I mean. Yeah, if you're being successful (laughs) and getting it done, like, there's there's some tactics that we learned on this that I was like, man, I would never do that. That would never work. And then there's some that I'm like, man, that would that would probably work. But if I never try right. the one that I'm like, that is dumb. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then I try it. It works. I'm I'm the dumbass then. You know what I mean? So exactly. So, yeah, I know what you're saying. But uh, we'll we'll get you into uh, why we had you on, other than the the BS session we just had <laughs> there. But uh, so you're doing sure. all thing whitetail management. Um, you're doing multiple different states. You said you're in Illinois and now you're in Missouri. So um. I'm kind of going to do a scenario for you. I want to run a couple. What, what are you looking at? <laughs> I was looking at your spill. Uh, yeah, it's, got, it's a lot bigger than it looked over <laughs> yeah. here. Yeah, I had a, a little stumble. Um, But, uh, yeah, so I'm going to do a scenario. Um, We're going to do two here. So I'm a guy. Um, I'm from Illinois, and I have a 45-acre piece, a um, little bit of ag, a little bit little bit of timber kind of mix mostly timber a little bit of ag what would you walk in and suggest that i would do you know there's there's so many of these scenarios that people ask me about and they always want you know what's what's the perfect answer to this what's the perfect answer to that i mean it's hard to say without actually being physically on the property but the first thing i'm going to go in and i'm going to look at is what your timber stand improvement looks like what what are the ages of your trees you know do you have browse cover browsing cover at the deer's level where it's actually usable things like that so then we're going to attack that with with some sort of timber stand improvement most likely if necessary going to look at access routes hopefully we can we can come in from um the you know the eastern portions of your property with predominantly western westerly winds things like that um and then you know you mentioned there's agriculture well let's say you know it's all it's all dependent upon the amount of agriculture you know is it strictly for for food plots, you know, are you a farmer? Um, things like that. It all depends, you know, on the size of the acreage. I mean, anything less than, let's say, minimum three acres really, you know, beans are, are a big thing I really like to plant. But if you don't have enough acreage, I mean, you're kind of shooting yourself in the feet, in the foot because, you know, if you have higher deer numbers, um, it's just, it's hard to, to maintain, you know, that type of food plot. So there's a million different ways, a million different um directions you could really go with it it's, it's just trying to put all the puzzle pieces together you know the, the food water and cover um and i really try to focus on the food and cover because a lot of times deer get 
you know, a, lar- a large majority of their, of their, you know, hydration through their natural browse. So I'm really focusing on the food and the cover. Um, and those are the first things I'm really looking at. And it's, you know, worst case scenario, we want to just have it, as much cover as we possibly can compared to your neighbors. So that when the, when the gunshots start firing and the guys start, you know, walking in the woods and not paying attention to access or wind or thermals, things like that, that those deer use the escape routes to get to your property. So it's, it's kind of all over the place. I, I like how you approach that because we always say that situation with every property, you mm-hmm. know. And uh, one thing that I can touch on huge that you said that we see a lot around here is the timber stand improvement. We hunt some places, and we have in the past, that it's just big oak timber, and it looks absolutely beautiful. Like, you're like, you can just imagine giant deer running and just deer vacated. They do not want to be anywhere mm-hmm. in it. It's too open, like shotgun season. They're edging. They're just barely edging the corner of the thick stuff just to get through right. there, you know, and that's how we're successful because we're using all this open ground to, well, they're not going to be there, so we're eliminating that. But um, if you were a guy was to go in there and eliminate some of those bigger trees and let some undergrowth grow in, that property would be a hundred mm-hmm. times better. You know, it would hold deer, you know, and not and that's, not just have a pass-through kind of mentality. And if you run Absolutely. cams... Absolutely. Like I said, this whole, this whole thing, it, it's not rocket science. At the end of the day, you just want to make every single bit of your property as usable as you possibly can. I mean, if you only got 45 acres, at the end of the day, you're not holding very many deer. I mean, deer are going to leave your property. That's just the reality of it. So you got to be able to make, you know, be able to make sure that you're using every single acre of your property in some way, shape, or form so that it's beneficial to, to the deer herd ultimately. I was going to say, you know, in just like in the scenario Cody was hot, talking about, if you run cams there like in the summer or, you know, the really early fall when you still have, you know, most of the foliage and, you know, not that heavy, dense um, browse or cover, you know, the deer are going to be there. But when it does open up, you know, you know, during the rut or late season, just like Cody said, the deer aren't going to be there. And, you know, you might be banking on them trail cameras from early in the year being like, yeah, it's a you great know, place I know to get the deer are here. Picks, yeah. You know, and you're going to have a false sense of security that the deer are in the area when actually, and it looks good, you know, it looks good. So you're going to have that false sense of security that, you know, deer are there. Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, I mean, the the main thing is really focusing on that time of year when, when gun seasons start rolling around. I mean, if you don't have the foliage or the cover or, you know, the brows or anything like that, in your scenario i mean you're losing a lot of deer to your neighbors and ultimately you're probably not seeing a ton yourself so yeah i mean early season everybody has the opportunity to get a little bit more lucky i would say just because there's 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 cover and browse in a lot of places but like i said if, if you have the cover um and especially the food when the when the leaves drop i mean that's that's a big win for sure and another thing you said was beans. We had we had this scenario this year. We planted probably about an acre, um, and we had a lot of beans late season still, but the amount that the deer ate before they were even three or four inches tall was staggering. We had deer mm-hmm. on cam just out there bedded, you know what I mean, <laughs> yeah. and getting up and eating and then bedded in front of the cam. So we lost a lot of beans. So I could see, like you said, you need a substantial food plot when you do do beans to have that late season food if you have high deer numbers luckily for us later in the year the deer kind of vacate that area and uh we still got beans out there so um but if they were there if they were there during the late season i mean a couple days they'd had that plot wiped out um right uh, we definitely had what what what? go ahead no go ahead yeah sorry 
one of the tricks that I use um, to keep deer off um, beans a lot of times, you know, as soon as you plant them, and, I, and you know, it's, I'm not the first person to ever say this, but using malorganite is a big thing that I like to use to keep the deer off the plots. Um, it's a human byproduct, basically, is what it is, and just reeks, and the deer don't want to smell it when they're when they're eating the beans. But once those beans hit, you know, eight, ten inches, I mean, you're re- it, it's really not working that well anymore. And those deer get in there and they kind of you know terrorize those those plots anyway. So, like I said, that's why I like to have you know around three acres minimum, depending on where where we're prescribing food plots, you know, throughout the country. I mean, it all depends on the deer herd, things like that, but. Worst case scenario, otherwise I'm telling a lot of my clients to end up going with corn, especially if they're looking to hunt late season, just because you're getting so, so much more actual, you know, browse per acre corn versus beans. Yeah. I mean, so they, it's, it's they're not out there eating the corn stalks early, you know what I mean? Like <laughs> yeah. the beans. So exactly. you know that you're going to have something if it, you know, if it, if the plot comes through, you know, you're going to have some late season because they're not going to be in there and, you know, early, early season wiping it out. So I like that tactic too. And he, he said we could plant corn up there. Oh, really? Yeah, so, oh, I mean, yeah. that might be something we yeah. think about. Yeah, it just had to be a green. Yeah. Um, one thing I want to touch on is something that Cody and I have really put an emphasis on the last two, three years, and, you know, you mentioned it right off the bat, is access, um, especially with the predominant wind, um, and that, this is why you're the professional, and, and we're talking to you, and, you know, um, are a lot of people really starting to focus on access now? Here's the thing. I mean, that access is huge. And everybody talks about wind. You brought up wind direction. One thing that I never hear anybody else say that is something that I live by is I almost rank thermals higher, especially with, with, you know, with where I'm living and where I'm hunting. I'm ranking thermals higher a lot of times than wind direction. Let's say I'm going to go out in the morning. And like I said, I'm kind of going off on a little bit of tangent here. But let's say I'm going out in the morning. Um, thermals are rising, obviously. That, that's a basic yep. concept that most people know. Um, if that wind's under, I don't care what the wind direction is. If it's under about five miles an hour, I'll push it up to about seven miles an hour. It's starting to get risky at that point, but if it's five miles an hour or less, I'm, I don't care about the wind direction most times. And it's dependent upon topography and things like that. So prime example, this year I had a deer that was bedding up, up towards the Northeast. I had a Southwest wind. I went in there on the morning and I killed him. He walked right to me almost carried my scent right over his head so a lot of times when when we're talking access i mean it depends where we are throughout the country and what your topography is like and things like that but paying attention to to wind speeds and thermals and then wind direction you know and trying to put the puzzle pieces together is is definitely you know something that you want to do i mean if you're not if you're not paying attention to your access whether you're leaving you know ground scent in the wrong areas or whatever you know you're really you're killing your chances yeah, I 100% agree with that. We try to we try to look at everything. Um, wind direction is our main thing. It doesn't seem like I mean in the mornings it's maybe some days, but it doesn't seem like we ever have like this low light wind days when the hunting is good. It always mm-hmm. seems like it's a 10, sure. 15 plus um, wind mile an hour like in the rut, you know. And I think a lot of it is yeah. when you get that northern northwest wind that we get. There's always something yep. coming with it. That's, that's, you know, and when you're hunting, you're hunting around a cold front or something. So the winds are always higher. So, uh, but I, I, I hundred percent agree with you, you know, early season, we do that a lot. We might, we might press it a little bit if it's a low light, it's a light wind and, and we can play the thermals in the morning. And then, uh, also early season, we, we tend to hunt not our best pieces. So we also feel like we can press it a little bit more. Yeah. And if we bump something, then we're not on our main, 
I want to I want to elaborate a little bit on the topography part because um, mm-hmm. we had to stand deep um, and we didn't hunt it because the access is you know it's limited to keep it prime so we waited until the rut when we could actually go back there and there was two or three different winds we hunted back there on and you know it was more of a west wind when we hunted back there because of you know how the deer were using the area and it didn't really seem to matter if it was you know a northwest or a southwest but that wind was always kind of coming at us at a northeast just mm-hmm. the way it was swirling down there and you know that's something that we noticed on like the second hunt down there is like you know I know that we have a west wind today but it's coming at us down here at this location from the northeast yeah and you know that's something to kind of keep in mind you know you're waiting to hunt a stand on a specific wind but due to the layout of the land it's coming that at you in a be different the way opposite of what you actually need exactly. when you're in there yeah yeah I, could, right and, and unless you go out there with milkweed or a smoke bomb or something like that you really don't know it's until it's too late so that's why banking on those low wind days where you can really bank on the thermals it, you know it's a little bit more predictable those you know a lot of people like that 10 12 mile an hour wind if i can get in, get there in the morning and not have to worry about my wind at all because i can play the thermals that's the ideal scenario for me i mean i, I like that but tip, everybody man. else has their yeah. own preference yeah, I like that tip because if you're if you're wanting to press in there and hunt an area and you got low wind but you know you got good thermals, I feel like that's a smart move because all you need is just that slight edge and that slight edge is you know that your thermal is going straight up with a with a light wind. You're even if you are carrying that way, you're going to be so your scent's going to be so high at the point that it reaches a deer. You you should be you should be good. So that's something that we might that's try. Absolutely. We're going to be more risky next year. I've talked about it a lot, but we're. <laughs> We're gonna Jeez. do some crazy stuff. We're starting this already. Yeah, we're gonna do some crazy <laughs> stuff this this coming year. So that might be something that we that, we try. Honestly, that's the only way you learn is if you really start risking it. Because honestly, even even when you do risk it, nine times out of ten, you're you're still not right. There's always you're always missing part of the puzzle. When you got it figured out, you generally don't. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So going in there and risking it and learning how deer are using topography and moving through terrain and things like that, or whatever it is that you can go in and and learn you know, by risking it. I, I push every single hunt almost, especially when I'm hunting public land around the country, I'll almost, I'm, I'm almost not satisfied unless I actually bump that deer out of its bed. Cause then I know, and then I can go back in there, pay attention to what the conditions were, come back another time, or maybe come back the next day. You know, maybe my, the wind was in my favor. He never smelled me. Sure. I bumped him, but maybe he comes back. You just never really know. So unless I bump him, I, I, a lot of times I just feel like I didn't learn anything. Oh, you know, otherwise you're just sitting up there and guessing a lot of times. So risking it is definitely, that's, that's something I like, I like doing for sure. Yeah. I feel like if we went out on a out of state whitetail hunt, like that's what we would try to do is, you know, really push it to the limits because the last thing I want to do is go home after a four day hunt and be like, well, we didn't even see a shooter, you know, yeah. be, because we were, we were playing it too pussyfooting safe. around the edge, you yeah. know? Absolutely. That's, that's the same thing with me. Like I said, that first day I'm almost, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm almost going in there and trying to bump the deer. I want to figure out exactly where they are and maybe they, they don't come back to that spot day number two, but another spot you might've scouted nearby that could be, you know, the second best bedding area. Maybe that's where you go then. So you really just got to push in there to, to figure everything out. Yeah. And I mean, if, even if you figured it out, you know, this month and you're going to come back next month, mm-hmm. you still know that area is holding a buck. So <clears throat> you gain that knowledge for, for, you know, I feel like if a good bucks in an area is there for a reason, I, I'd say this a lot, like 
there's good bucks there. There be there's gonna be good bucks there next year. It's just like it's sure. just they if they're there, they there's reason that they're there and they're gonna continue to be there as long as no people come in there and alter them, you know what I mean? So but uh let's get back on exactly. the the management kind of things. We were, homie's real good at starting tangents, so I'm gonna blame that one on him. I'm but the same way. Yeah, okay. so we're all we're all good at that, man. I I go off on the half the stuff that I say never works. It's straight bullshit. But which you know, what I mean, but like you you're gotta, gonna be more aggressive this year. You gotta talk it out. You gotta talk dumb. it out. That's that's how you learn. So absolutely, we were talking about cover or cover. You know, what I mean, and one way is to to do some timber stand improvement, uh, get some undergrowth, but. Um, ha- have you seen that to be the best way to get cover on a property? Yeah. And like I said, I mean, if we're talking about timber going in there and, and using some form of PSI is generally what we're looking at doing nine times out of 10, I'm using the hack and squirt method. A lot of guys like using the hinge cut method. I mean, one, I feel like I can knock out a bigger area by using hinge cut Two, It's not, um, it, you know, it's, it's, it's not as, as far as safety goes, you just never know how those trees are going to jump off the hinge. You just don't know. And three, I mean, if you think about it, a hinge cut is probably going to need maintenance in three years. You go ahead and you cut that tree down. Um, and in about three years, a lot of that growth that ends up sprouting can be above the deer's reach again. And then what are you left with? You got to go back in there and rehinge a lot of stuff. And it's, it takes a lot of maintenance. So now I'm not saying I never use it. I, it's just something, it's something where there's always, a, there's a time and a place for it, but, Hack and squirt method is something that I personally, you know, find to work a little bit more on a natural stamp from a natural standpoint, I guess. Um, like I said, uh, getting immediate side cover through hinge cut through hinge cutting is necessary sometimes, but um, it just takes a lot of maintenance with hinge cutting. You can't go in there and hinge cut something and then just leave it because um, be, eventually it just becomes, you know, a tangled mess or or it, you know, it over overgrows or outgrows the deer's reach. So that's why I kind of lean towards the hack and squirt method as far as timber stand improvement goes. I got a couple of questions. I don't know what hack and stem <laughs> means or hack, hack and, and squirt. squirt, hack and squirt. But before hack and be, squirt, sure. Before we answer that, um, I want to get back on the hinge cutting. I got a question for that. So, um, in your opinion, when you hinge cut an area, how many? years or does it take you to to make that an effective bedding area or cover area because um i know some spots that was hinge cut on public and uh, i walked it the next year of course for sheds or something and it just wasn't thick it was almost more open than the other timber you know what i mean so how does it take sure. a couple years for that to to grow up or well here's the thing i mean as soon as you hinge cut a tree i i put through trail camera survey, surveys, I see deer using it sometimes almost immediately. Depends what's surrounding it and things like that. A lot of times they're going in there and they're browsing on that on that new hinge. Um, so it, it, every situation is a little bit different. But let's say you know it, it was you know a, a, an area that had super tall trees, uh, a large canopy, things like that, and there wasn't a lot of cover. It's going to take ballpark three years, give or take you know, the side of the ridge that you're on, depending on, you know, whether it's southerly facing, northerly facing, things like that. Um, I'd say ballpark about three years to really start noticing effective cover where, you know. Where deer is going to be there kind of late season, because that's when I went up there. Like, it makes a lot of sense to me that you said if if you knew where someone was going to do that and you could attack it like early season where that leafy browse is on the ground um, to get in there and do that. But when I walked, it was late season and like, 
I felt like it was almost worse than the other places. But I was always wondering, you know, if, if someone did go in there and they're thinking, man, I'm going to create this awesome bedding area. Deer are going to be here late season using this, um, you know, to be able to get some sun through the canopy but also have some cover. Um, but it, it just almost seemed too open. So that would make sense. About three years, you get some more sure. growth. And um, it's it's bad when, like, you walk through an area and you're like, man, this is just too open, you know. So I mean, I imagine a deer walking through there. I just I feel like they think it's like the ripping the shower curtain open on a guy. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah exactly. And like I said, I mean, if that, in in my opinion, that portion of your property is not usable. Then my goal when I go to a property and try to write up a habitat management plan, I want every single acre accounted for. So that's that's my ultimate goal. Okay, so let's get into the hack and squirt method because I'm I'm green on this. <laughs> so this is gonna be fun. Yeah, so all hack and squirt is is basically you go and you take a hatchet and you go at about a 45-degree angle and you hack into a tree. And you, all you have to do because you've reached the cambium layer of the tree is take a herbicide and spray it in there. So depending on the size of the tree, you know, maybe you hack, um, you know, you hack twice. Let's say you do, I'm trying to explain, without visually showing people, it's kind of hard. So like I said, you do it at a 45-degree angle. And then maybe if you got a bigger tree, you move four, five, six inches over and you do another one and you spray herbicide in both of those. A lot of times if it's a smaller tree, you're not going to have to make, you know, you're not going to have to hack at it twice, but um, in two different spots. But that way, that tree, it's almost like knurling. Do you guys know what knurling is? Nope. <laughs> That's basically when you take a chainsaw and you cut around the perimeter of the tree, but don't cut all the way through it. Basically leave that tree, you know, standing there dead so a lot of times you're not you're not creating all the trash on the ground right away you know that's that's going to end up dying or, or whatever it is it, it's going to naturally fall at some point but that tree's dead as soon as you as soon as you put that herbicide in there and that allows for obviously there to be less of a canopy and the sunlight to, to, to come through and like i said as far as safety you know precautions go it's a lot lot safer of a method um and it's equally as effective if not more effective and it's going to take a lot less maintenance than the guys who are out there hinge cutting and hinge cutting i'm sure i'll get a lot of flack for it. there's been guys who have been going out there and doing hinge cutting for years um and, and there's a time and place for it but like i said if i can get away with with using the hack and squirt method it's a lot safer and i see equally as good you know as you know equally as good results i should say i like that idea man you're, you're still you're still getting the sun down to the forest floor, letting that new growth come in. Um, a lot of those, you know, I don't want to cut, you know, trash trees. You could do that too and kind of eliminate them. That is really not giving any benefit to the deer anyways. Um, and then you're creating an area that is, that you can just tell like, even like if you go to a place that's been recently logged like five years ago, six years ago, it's just thick, you know what I mean? Or a new timber area where like, it used to be an, an ag field or it used to be like a, a, or a cattle pasture or something, you know, trees start growing up. It's just thick, you know what I mean? So I could see that sure. benefiting. And then if you don't have to go in there and, and keep whacking trees to, to keep the the new growth down, like with a hinge cut, you know what I mean? So, I feel like with the new growth on the hack and squirt method, like I feel like that new growth is going to stay around longer than a tree that's been hinge cut that's yeah. been damaged. Yeah. How long, 
I know a lot of people say that a hinge cut tree will keep continue to stay alive. How long have you noticed that they will stay alive? You know, I mean, I'm sure there's a method that you got to nail correctly to to keep the tree alive in general. But I mean, it, the rule of thumb is keep as much of the tree intact as you possibly can. There's been studies and a lot of people that I've heard that have seen them stay alive for as long as 20 years. Um, every tree is obviously different. Um, it depends how it falls and, and things like that. But I mean, a hinge cut can stay alive for a long time, but like I said, you got to go in there and maintain it. I've, I've hinged trees in the past that I got to go in there within two years and I've got suckers that are growing up eight feet tall. Well, at the tip of eight feet, I mean, that's way without, you know, way, way higher than any deer can reach. So there you are rehinging a hinge cut. So, um, they can live for a long time but it's just how beneficial are they over time. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And then, like you said, it's a lot, you know, you never know how a tree is going to fall for one, and then it could get hung up in another tree, and then you're like, well, I'm either going to have to take this tree down that I didn't want to, or I'm going to have to have a tree that's hanging here that could fall any time, you know? And uh, we've all seen the the pictures of tree stands getting smoked by trees. You never think it's going to happen or the buck that's underneath the tree or something <laughs> right, yeah. that's crazy. But uh, like you yeah, said, it's exactly. a lot, lot like, safer. If, if I do hinge cut, if, which is very rarely nowadays, if I do, I'm always using wedges to try and manipulate which way that tree is going to fall. I mean, you can still never completely predict it, but um, it, it at least helps, you know, push that tree in the, in the direction that you're aiming for at least. If, if you are choosing to hinge cut your property, at least. Okay. So let's say I'm on a property and I don't want to do the hack and squirt and I don't want to do um, hinge cutting. What is another way that I could get beneficial cover or is there a way? Call up the local lumber company. Uh, going in and, and doing a select cut or a clear cut, depending on the location, access, a million other things. You know, if, if that's something that you don't want to do or you don't want to hire out to somebody to go in there and do that form of timber stand improvement, calling in a logger most likely is going to be your next next best, next best option. And depending on, on the timber, you know, maybe put a little bit of money in your pocket. Other than that, um, if you've got, you know, open open ground um, that you want to turn into cover, planting, you know, switch grasses, little blue stem, big blue stem, things like that that are actually going to stay standing, you know, especially in the northern portion of the country, when late season occurs, a lot of times those grasses will all fall over, um, depending on what you have out there. So um, there's a couple different options, but as far as the timber goes, the light cutting would probably be your next best option if you didn't want to do any of the other timber stand improvements. Yeah, we've seen that where we've had a grassy area and then a heavy snowfall comes and it just wipes it out and then you have no cover. So. Um, yeah, exactly. having the right grass is the right, you know, blue stem is important because, um, you think you got this fire late season spot <laughs> yeah. and then, you know, you get a three, four, five inch snow with that's blowing. And then it's, it's looks like a freaking crop field that's been disc yeah. out there. Cause there's just nothing standing. So, um, that's definitely something to think about. And, and we've, we've found that that CRP is something that, um, deer flock to in the winter. I found a ton of sheds and, uh, you know, in standing grass. Um, uh, they really like that area. I don't know if they like it because there's more sun or they they can get out of the, the timber and they feel a little bit more safe there because they, they, they can see around them and they can hear a little better or, or what it is. But they just like to be there in the wintertime. So. 
Absolutely. And like you said, I mean, bringing up, you know, being a little bit warmer, a lot of times people talk about thermal cover and they talk about cedars and things like that. And other things that's overly beneficial for deer, you know, in the winter and things like that. But how much sunlight actually gets through cedar, a cedar thicket, if you think about it, how much, how much undergrowth is there in, within the cedar thicket? I'd rather sit out, you know, in the sunlight, like you said, um, depending, you know, on vantage points, because that, that's kind of generally how I find, especially mature bucks, they're always going to bed with some sort of, you know, vantage point over access or, or, or looking over something. But yeah, getting out in those open fields or, or wherever it might be that the sun can actually beat down on them is a huge thing late season for sure. Yeah, and I I feel I heard a lot of people. Oh man, you had a nice cedar deer gonna be up in that. I've never found very many sheds in cedar. Like I might find one like a lone cedar out in the middle of nowhere, but not like a lot of sure. cedars. Because like you said, when you walk through a cedar, there's nothing. There's not a twig. There's not a little puff of grass. It's just the you know, pine needles underneath. There's cedar needles, and that's it. And uh, I feel like, like you said, there's no sun there. And once those cedars get so tall, the limbs on the bottom kind of die out anyways, and, and they don't get that that ground cover. So I feel like the cedars would be exactly. good for like I mean, the first five years. And then even, even so, you're just blocking out so much sunlight to the ground that you're not getting any natural forms or grasses growing at all. And, and ultimately browsing on cedars, if, if you are browsing on cedars, you're lacking food someplace and that is not that's not a, a nutritious or or beneficial thing that the deer should be eating to begin with a lot of times if i'm seeing large cedar thickets on properties a lot of guys will go in and actually plant them just with a lack of research and knowing what they're actually going to do we'll go in and tell people start start hacking them down and burning them because you having an open grassland is going to offer a lot more food and beneficial cover to that deer than a cedar thicket ever would don't get me wrong, cedar thickets, you know, if the, if there's a 30-mile-an-hour wind, and that's probably where I'm going to go to. But um, I'm sure the deer, depending on topography and things like that, can find other places that they can get out of the wind. So it's just it's almost like a like a desert, you know. It's just like a biological desert for deer, a lot of these cedar thickets. Yeah. I'm going to say, I mean, that's interesting to hear because, like, the way that I was kind of, you know, brought up and raised and, um, you know, like, cedar thicket is where the deer go in the winter and you know that's where they're gonna be because you know they can you know get in there get out of the wind and stuff but when you start thinking about what you would want in the winter you know you talk about the sunlight no no food you know so why why would a deer go there other than for just a windbreak but Mm. so and especially in in the middle of a cedar thicket i mean as far as predators go predators could come from any with you know any direction sneak up on with sneak up on them within 10 yards i'm not saying deer don't use cedar thickets i mean they, they definitely there's a there's probably a time and place for them but there's other things that you can be doing with your property that can benefit the deer herd a lot more than a, than a cedar thicket might yeah i feel like now that you said that like i feel like that that has been put up like kind of on a pedestal as like a late season destination and Absolutely. You know, with, with you explaining that, like, it really, you yeah. know, should I feel like there's more beneficial to maybe, like, a patch of three or four cedars out sure. in, like, a grassy area. I feel like I've seen a lot of beds and sheds and rubs and stuff Absolutely. around that area. But I feel like when, like, I used to shed hunt a piece that was just, there was ag and everything, and there was this massive, just, like, 20-acre <laughs> cedars, you know what I mean? Like, right. And you could just, like, you sure. had to crawl through it, like, because it was... You could crawl and get through it, you know what I mean? And and uh, right. I never found any sheds there. 
So that just right. shows yeah. you that. And that, d- just like you said, you know, with the four or five seaters, like, you know, a deer's still going to have vantage point, still going to have an escape route. But when you get too dense of an area, just like, I wonder you know, if Brett another said, thing is like the scent is so strong from a cedar, like in that area that it be. messes with their senses and overpowers them. Um, that's something that, I mean, if know, we smell it as much yeah. as we do, you know what I mean? Like, especially if it's been rubbed and broke open. Yeah. Dude, there's no way. Yeah. So. I mean, I'm sure it makes a small difference, but at the end of the day, a human has, on average, I think it's about five five million olfactory glands versus a deer who has well over 200 million. So I think a lot of times the the thing that I've heard is, you know, a human might smell cake, but the deer can smell every ingredient of it. So I'm God, sure that'd it makes be epic, some difference to a certain extent. It, it, might, it might match some, you know, match a little bit of something. Before I ate cake, I'd be like... Day, their, no, their noses are the number one defense mechanism. You know, hands down. I need that. So when I walk up to a plate of cookies, I'm like, <laughs> man, that one's got peanut butter in it. Don't do it, dude. <laughs> you know what I mean, like, that's my R. I just don't like peanut butter. So, I mean, that would benefit me huge. Those are extra large eggs instead of large eggs. Yeah, like, those those are goose eggs. That's what you want. That's this. That's the solid one right there. But, uh, all right. So let's, uh, let's get it. Let's get into this a little bit more. So... Um, well, go ahead. You guys. I was, I was going to ask, you know, how often do you go to a spot that's, you know, had a food plot and recommend like a change based on like the deer's already available natural diet? Um, how often do you recommend like them put in like, you know, a beet or, you know, another late season plot? Going in and looking at people's food plots, nine times out of 10, we're making some kind of change. Um, whether it's the method in which they planted it, whether they did a soil test or not. Um, honestly, wh- on what winds you can even hunt certain plots um, would affect what I would plant. A lot of times I see northerly winds with that cold front rolling in and things like that. Deer are more likely to go to a grain field, in, in my opinion, versus a green field. So it's all dependent upon which winds you can hunt it on. Um, and those are just things that I've seen. And, you know, somebody else might see the complete opposite. So it's just something that I pay attention to and kind of keep in mind. But nine times out of ten, if we see somebody, you know, is doing food plots, there's always some sort of change, whether it's what they're planning, how they're planning planning it, when they're planning it. There's always something. Um, and, and even at the end of the day, it's it's a more concentrated food source. Even if you do have a really good, you know, thick property with a lot of browse at the, at the deer's level, it's it's a destination food source. Hopefully, at the end of the day, where these deer are eventually getting to, um, and so it's it's always something that you can use within your hunting tactics, even if you have a lot of cover and a lot of browse throughout your 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 you know your parcel. Yeah, I could agree with that. Drewies always say like warm up, they go back to the greens. You know, yeah. they're on the grain. So that's just not something that I would think about. Like this food plot has to be dedicated to a north wind when. Like, where do I want to plant my grain? It has to be a north wind. Like, you're thinking maybe west or northwest, but you're not in sure. your mind like, this is a green field. You, it might want to, might want to have south wind on it because if it's warming yeah. up, you might, you might get that first south wind after a cold front. That's right. something that I've never thought about. That's a really solid tip because um, I've heard that, but I've never associated that with wind. Sure. And it, it, it's something that I'm putting, that I'm taking into account. It's not the number one priority. I'm obviously looking at what else is around, what's on neighboring properties, things like that, what the area generally, you know, in general is lacking. I mean, it's just one of the things that go into that equation, you know, when I'm looking at food plot placement and what we're planning. 
So it's not the, the end-all, be-all, but it's definitely one of the things, you know, I think about for sure. I'm going to say, and I mean, most guys are playing food plots, you know, or late spring, early summer. They, they're probably not thinking about the wind, you know what I mean? The only thing, the only time that, no, you know, they're in not. the food plot, you know, thinking about the wind is their stand placement. Yeah. You know, they're not thinking about, you know, where the deer is going to come from or, or why the deer is coming there. They're just like, you know, I, I got to get food here. I, I think they're bedding here. So I'm going to, you know, put a stand here, hunt it on this wind. And, you know. Yeah. They're not trying to piece everything up. Like, you know. Exactly. Temperature's different. So they might go here or they might hit this water first and then go here. There's, there's a lot of stuff to, to think about and. Like we plan our food plot, like we have a designated area that it has to go on this one property. So that is, right. it's kind sure. of tough for us, you know what I mean? But uh, um, sure. we're learning on it. We're going to make some changes next year and uh, try to do better. But um, we'll, uh, you know, I'm sure food plot is a huge, um, a huge area for your management um, process. So if you could, if a guy could plant two food plots on his property, what would they be? Depending on size, it's going to depend on size. Like I said, if, if, if I can figure out a way to, if I can plant beans because I can hunt it early season or late season, that's another thing. When are you going to hunt your property? Are you, are you just the guy who's going to be hunting during gun season or the rut or whatever? Cause there's, there's always a time and a place for every food plot. But if I had to pick two food plots that I was going to put on my property saying that I had the perfect scenario for each, I would definitely have a form of grain and I'd have a form of green. I'd likely pick soybeans, um, assuming that I had the, the right amount of acreage, and I'd be planning a blend of some sort. There's certain companies that I personally like working with just due to the freshness of their seed and the germination rate, but something with, with purple top turnips, daikon radishes, maybe some clovers mixed in, some white and red clovers, just so the deer have a variety. Um, I'd, I'd like a little bit, you know, best of both worlds It would, would ultimately be my goal. What's the what's the company? We're we're all free grains here, man. <laughs> what what's you horny, I'm, horny buck seed. Horny buck seed, okay. Horny I'm sure that you've used a, I, an yeah. ass load of different different seeds, you know what I mean, going into this. So it's always cool to get people's perspective. That's something that we've never I've never used horny buck seeds. No. I've used a lot of different it's, ones. It's not, I, I I personally got to know the owner over the years and the guy, he's not out. He's not out to make a buck. He's out there to just be an honest, honest guy. He's, he's at the end of the day, he's, 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 he's not in this business to be a businessman. He's in it because he's a farmer and he knows how to grow deer and he knows how to grow crops and he, and he's good at what he does. Um, he has the freshest seed on the market that I'm aware of. That seed is generally harvested, the, you know, harvested in the spring or earlier that year, and then in a bag by summer and then back in the ground. Hopefully, if you buy from him. So with that being said, the fresher the seed, the better the germination rate, the better the quality of the food plot. And that's strictly why I use his product. He doesn't pay me a penny to say that. Um, I use it because it works, and that's why I recommend it to, to my customers. Yeah, man, it's it's solid when you get that relationship with a you know a guy and you can just tell that he's doing the right thing, and that makes you want to use his product even more, especially if it works. But if you can see the passion that he has into it and, and he's doing trying to do the right thing that makes you want to use it even more and we've got a couple people that we work with like we can just see the passion they put in you know and that makes us want to use it even more even though it is a badass product but there's something that people when people go above and beyond for their customers like you said he's not in it to make money he just wants to do the right thing 
that's when you know you got something solid. So we'll we'll check that out. We got an area right now. Like I feel like if we could convince him at the scrape tree, if we could get something in that bottom corner. Oh man, yeah. That would be, be that'd pretty be real, solid. We need a green there. That'd be definitely. Yeah, I feel like they'd be pretty solid. They just to happen, hold them, like they're just moving through there, you know. And just, there's already a scrape there. Yeah. You know, a natural scrape. They're, and they're coming there. They're a lot. already there early season. Yeah. Marking, you know, I think it. I think it really increase our chances. Yeah. So. Instead of just on a cold front, you know. Yeah, that might be something that we check into. So we'll we'll definitely check into the horny buck seed and see what they what they're working with. That's a solid name, Absolutely. too. I mean, I sometimes I ask them, like, why did you name the company that? But it's it's a catchy one. You never forget it. Nah, yeah, yeah. I'll give when, them that. yeah. Once you got in there. So, so I, I know a lot of people, um, you covered water just a little bit. I know a lot of people are big on like putting those little pools of water. Um, you see them with like a stick in <laughs> so like a squirrel can get out if they fall in or something. Yeah. But have you ever done that yeah. or seen any bit? I just feel like, like you said, that. I am a whole entire time hunting. I've hunted next to water, and I've never seen a deer take a drink of water. Have you? And that's me? the thing. Like I said, there's the majority of their of their water consumption is through browse. I don't I don't waste my time with it. There's guys, there's habitat management guys who are out there, and there's a lot of things we don't agree on. I I don't waste my time putting in a little bit a little water hole. Sure, they might hit it, but at the same time, there's other things that I could I could be spending my time doing that are going to be more beneficial to to my deer herd than putting in these little water tanks and things like that i mean are deer eventually going to hit them probably are you going to get some pictures yeah but are you going to get you know that's not i'm, I'm not going in there focusing you know i'm strictly hunting my water hole very many days out of the year you know what i'm saying i mean maybe there's a time and place for it if it's super hot day and you decide to go hunting but i just i don't know it's one of those things where it, it's it's you know, it's, it's, it's knowledge. It, it's learned knowledge that a lot of, a lot of the, the, you know, a lot of their water consumption is, is taken through their brows. So they don't necessarily have to go and drink out of a watering hole every two, three, four hours like a human might. It's just something that's not necessary. Yeah. I could, I couldn't really agree with that more. Um, I ran a truck camera over a, you know, flowing Creek for, you know, two years and um, I have one picture of a buck taking a drink, and it was during the rut, so I don't know if he was just, you know, coming off a doe or something, but literally on a creek crossing, and I, I just don't know if they just don't drink from a from a creek crossing or whatnot, but... Um, I'm sure they do. It's just like I've never seen like one. Like you're already crossing there. Why not yeah. just get a drink? You know it, what it, I mean? And that's the thing. If they're already crossing it or they're going to the location where it just happens to be there, yeah. they'll yeah. probably stop there. Yeah. Right. But and, they're not going to go walk a mile just to get to it when they're getting a lot of their a lot of their you know water content through. Exactly. Through I mean, it was like drought. a... I it was like a mid one twenties eight pointer. Right. I mean, just your run of the mill yeah. eight pointer, just stopping to get a drink. Mid-day. I feel like I feel sure. like after rain, you always see like kind of a pickup too, and I feel like they're trying to browse on that moisture so they don't yeah. have to go to water. Absolutely. So that Absolutely. all makes that's sense. Just that's something I I haven't thought about. Yeah, they're trying to get up earlier because they're the browse is probably more digestible, and they're getting some water because you know it's it's you know wet and. Mm-hmm. They don't have to chew their cud for so long. <laughs> They're getting out there on that freshy stuff. So, so but absolutely. So we're uh, about forty-four minutes in here. I want to kind of throw this at you. Um, so if you could tell me, like a, I don't care if it's thousand acres or a hundred acres. If you could just make a property 
for whitetails, real quick, what would you do? Like you just show up, and this is like your dream property. What what is it going to have? Acreage, um, TSI, um, CRP, ag, food plot. Yeah, I'm going to say that 70 percent of that property is going to be in something that I'm going to call a savanna. So savanna is going to have some some large scale trees, but spread out far enough so that there's enough undergrowth. You know, there's enough brush, there's enough um, you know thicket and browse that those deer no matter where they are with throughout the property are always close to some form uh, of cover and on top of that browse. So 70% of that property I'm probably going to have in Savannah. Um, as far as food, a food, food source goes, Oh man, I'm going to say percentage wise, you know, 15, it, it all depends where you are. Um, but in the, in the ballpark of, of 15% of that property, I'd like to have in food. Um, a good combination of green and grain, you know, depending on your conditions and, and your deer herd, um, you know, number dependent and how, how much you're going to plant to this versus that. I'm going to have, you know, a good amount of, of planted food as well. So like I said, the main thing that I really focus on is just food and cover. It's a simple game. And as long as you know how to access your property, this property would probably be accessible from every possible direction. Um, you know, if let's say I owned a, a, a country block, a 640 acre piece, hopefully I could access it from every, every which way. Otherwise, worst case scenario, it would be, you know, from the easternly edge, you know, so maybe if I had the J hook in there on a southwest or northwest wind, I could get away with it. it might be a little bit risky, but that property would have solid access. Um, and like I said, I mean, just having the food and cover, it, it's, it's really a simple concept. It's just, you got to figure out how the deer are using your specific property and then man- manipulate them in a way so that you can hopefully harvest them. Um, it, it's, it's not as, it's not as, you know, in depth as, as people, I mean, it's, it's in depth, but it's, it doesn't have to be as crazy as people make it out to be. It's just, at the end of the day, it's a pretty simple equation when it it's comes just to a lot of work. I mean, you can never, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a lot of work and you can never always, say that the deer are definitely going to do this because about the time that you assume that they're going to, <laughs> they don't. Yeah. But, but I mean, just having that, that solid balance of, of food and cover, I mean, that's, that's really what I'd be looking for along with really good access. I could see that, man. You have all that. I just love that overgrown nasty stuff with just a few trees in it. I feel like deer just love that. They just, and, and every time I feel like, this is a good spot. It seems to work out. You know what I mean? I just like, feel like if there ain't thorns there, deer ain't going to be yeah, there. Yeah, like they just want the nastiest, <laughs> you know I mean? thickest yeah, stuff. Just, and, yeah, and like I said, I'd want 70% of that property in it, but I wouldn't want 70%, like, I wouldn't want that 70% of it all being one block. I'd want pockets of cover where there's where there's edge, you know, where there's, where there's travel corridors and transition lines where I can go in there as a hunter and, and sneak in there and hopefully manipulate some movement and get on some deer. I mean, if you just have one huge thicket, that's, you know, yeah, that's going to be tough to get in on. Yeah. Whatever. Cause you it's, don't really know what yeah, the deer, there's no on. pinch points. So, there's no... so would you take right. Right. four parcels of 10 acres versus one parcel of a hundred acres? Personally. Yeah, I would. Um, I like having a lot of different spots because what happens is, you know, you got bad neighbors on one piece or, you, you know, all your target bucks got taken out that year. You know, unless something magically moves in, you're kind of out of luck. I, I'm the guy who's always 
looking at the small properties, the overlooked places, the more options that I have, the better. Because let's say I got 10 acres here and I got 10 acres, you know, five miles away. If I go and I blow out this 10 acres, um, I can always go to, the, to option B. One of my best properties for years hunting in Wisconsin was 17 acres. Um, this year, I killed a buck on five acres. And he was he was 140-inch deer, and he was the sixth largest deer that I had seen on that property. Actually, the deer I was going in there to kill that morning that I – so the deer I killed this year, like I said, on five acres, I was going in there to kill a different deer. And this one ended up coming out of the same bedding area and giving me a five-yard shot. I wasn't going to pass it up. Well, it ends up the deer that I was going after that morning. I did see him. I saw him five hunts in a row on that five acres, um, and he actually made it through the year. So him and another five-year-old made it through the year, so I'm looking to take one of nice. those years. So <laughs> put it in stone, guys. I'm, I'm, I'm taking him down next year. Oh, nice. Yes. Yeah, yeah, we're, I mean, we're, we're rooting for yeah, you. Yeah, we're rooting for you. I, I'm following you now, man. I got I got to get you. You got an Instagram handle and everything. I got to get on that so I can follow you throughout the year. But one more question I had. Um one thing that we do not see people utilize around here, like at all, you never see it hardly on any property, um, fruit trees. Do you see any beneficial to that? Um, do you use any of that? That's like something that we like, where, where can you hunt an apple tree? Like there's not like a lot of <laughs> apple tree, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. or a persimmon oh, yeah. tree oh, or yeah. anything like that. So do you put sure. any and stake like, in that? that- Definitely. I mean, it's part of the game plan, but at the same time, you really got to, if you're going to be putting in a lot of these fruit trees, you got to pay a lot of attention to them. You got to make sure that deer aren't going in there and tearing them up and, and over browsing them and making rubs on them. You got to take the, the, you know, the, the correct precautions to make sure that those trees are going to be able to grow. Yeah. I got um, a peach and an apple tree in my yard and they're ass load of work just for two of them. So I couldn't imagine having like 15 of them out in the timber. Like right. the first five six years is when you got to put the work in and then they're kind of self-sustaining you know what i mean you need to trim a little bit but you got to be willing to maintain them and if you're not then it's almost kind of a waste of money and and a waste of time i mean it's it's one of those things if you're willing to put in the time and work then absolutely go go have at it but there's other things that are going to be beneficial that you could probably focus on they're going to take a little less maintenance but if you're willing to put in the work i'd absolutely recommend it that's for sure it might be it might be that one spot that that buck walks out into your food plot and he goes to first. You know, it might be something that you can you can pattern a deer to, to you know to do. Maybe maybe stops at that that apple tree before he heads out to the destination food source. It absolutely could have benefits, but like I said, just be willing to, to maintain it. You know, I'm gonna say in uh, the fruit tree thing is kind of something I've experienced firsthand, but not really like as far as hunting goes. But um, I bought my house in 2011. In November, we moved in Thanksgiving weekend. Um, I was literally pulling into my driveway at 11 o'clock at night. And I have deer standing in like the road to the side of my yard. And, um, you know, I was like, what in the hell is going on? And then they take off across the street, go right by my neighbor's door. Um, in my backyard, when I moved in, I had a peach tree and a pear tree. And you cut them all down? I, I did. Oh, but, my God. But the, the, hold on, I'm getting to it. So um, 2013, we you had— much, You much wine you could have made off those trees? I, did, I, I made some grape juice. made some baller grape juice because um, I had a grapevine on the fence. And that's gone. Um, yep, that's gone, too. Um, so getting back to the peach and the pear tree. Farmy, farmer homie over there. <laughs> right. I had everything right in the backyard. <laughs> Um, in 2013, we had like a record rainfall in the spring. And then, you know, like the, the peach tree 
which was, you know, producing really good. It had so many peaches on there, it went and it snapped the branches. So I'm like, oh, sure. okay, like, you know, what the hell, like, is this is not good. Next year, um, it sprouted, it had bud, and then when it come time to, like, get the peaches off, like, before the peaches were even ripe, it was, you know, it was already sour. Yeah. And, you know, so just like Dude, you were saying like it it's gonna one take more minions. year man no i mean <laughs> we, we gave her all she had but eventually you just gotta whack it i'm just you know giving I mean? you a hard time <laughs> i'm tired of mowing over sour peaches yeah, i'm <laughs> over apples all year bro lamar eats so, them right up i mean just like just like they were saying you know it sounds like a good idea and the deer love them and you know you know no matter what you got out there if, if it's sweet they're gonna be on it but it's uh takes it's, maintenance. It's, it, yeah, it's a better idea in your head than it is when it gets out there and then it, it it fails and you wonder why it fails because you didn't put in the work to keep it up. You don't want to put an apple tree in a bedding area, you know what I mean? Because no. you got to go in there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Put some maintenance on it. So, hey, I got some grape juice, bro. I'll bring it over. We can hit it with some vodka. <laughs> we'll have a good night. <laughs> you got grape juice? Is it stored up still? Yeah, it's frozen, it's simmering. No. Oh, God, that shit is fermented as hell. Oh, yeah. You probably don't even need no vodka. (laughs) (laughs) All right, man. Well, uh, let the listeners know. I mean, like we said, this is, we've been talking about kind of, you know, what you could do, but this is an ass little work, and you're you're the guy that's going to come in and take care of that for them. And uh, you got the skills and the trade. Like, if someone told me to go out there and hinge cut an area or, what? Hack and squirt. Hack and squirt. I'd be like, I'm out, man. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> sure. Um, um, sure. Let the listeners know where they can find you. And um, another thing I think is cool is, you know, maybe maybe you want to do some of this work. It's also it's good to I followed your page just because there's good knowledge on there because you're sh- kind of sharing what sure. you're doing throughout the year. So um, even if sure. you're a listener that doesn't want to, you know, pay to have this done, it's he's a He's a good guy to get some knowledge from on, on his social media. So let them know where they can find you. Absolutely. So like I said, you can go and check out um, the social media pages on uh, you know Instagram. It's at Whitetail Land Management. Um, same thing if you go type in Whitetail Land Management Services on Facebook, you'll be able to find us there. Um, and then if you want to email me directly, it's whitetaillandmanagement at gmail.com. And then, like I said, we got that up-and-coming thing going on with with our new company and our new show is Rising Grind Outdoors. Um, like I said, with my buddy Corey Anderson, he's number five light heavyweight in the world. Um, he's actually fighting next weekend. Well, it'll, it'll actually all fought by the time this airs, but um, he's he's a, he's a big hunter. He's on Joe Rogan's podcast, so we're going to be filming a lot of hunts all over the country this year. Um, so we're going to be having content coming out and all different you know different types of places but if you go to whitetail land management on instagram um or whitetail land management services on facebook you'll be able to you'll be able to tie it all together and find us somehow that's for sure nice man well like i said i appreciate you coming on i definitely learned some some good tactics that we might try out and um i know our listeners and we we got a lot of guys that have you know small acreage some guys um, shout out next level. I don't even know how many acres Scott has. But he's got a lot. <laughs> he's got like six thousand turkeys on it. <laughs> Won't even share. I'm gonna get a thin from, a few out. Yeah. But. <laughs> <laughs> but man, we appreciate you coming on. We know our listeners are gonna enjoy this episode and uh, get some get some intel from it. Absolutely. I'm glad. I'm glad you guys had me on, and hopefully, some people. If anything else, like I said, 
even if, if nobody nobody chooses to hire me on, hopefully they learn something at the end of the day. That's that's my goal. So hopefully we accomplish that. All right, guys, this is the outro. <laughs> I don't know if we have music yet or not. I don't know if homie's got music lined up or not, but uh, but uh, we need like a like a three solid beat in between just so people know. <laughs> but sure. uh, but yeah, um, I, I really enjoyed this episode. I I tried to throw some questions out there that I wanted to learn. So hopefully the listeners learned something too. Um, it's time of the year to get out there and start thinking about deer season for next year already. You know, what I mean, it's yeah, and you know, br- off off air you know brett's the type of guy that um we we could have back on he's got a whole shit ton of knowledge and um if you guys have listened to this episode and you still have a question that we didn't ask because you know we're we're okay we're at this pod- yeah i say we're okay <laughs> at this podcast thing um if you're if you have a question that you want answered you know yeah, he said we he can would definitely yeah. have him back on yeah um no problem and um we can get it answered for you. So don't be afraid to send them in and, you know, maybe late May, mid May throughout the June area when, you know, we're all trying to really focus on putting in them food plots. We can, we can get him back on and, you know, maybe answer some of them questions that you guys have. Yeah. And uh, check out rising ground outdoors. Um, they got some big things going on this year, so I'm excited to follow them and, uh, and check out what they got going on. And, uh, um, Sheds are still following, guys. They're out there. Get your kids out there. Leave a legacy and white till legacy's out.